Thanks to Truebill for supporting the Productivity Show. From forgotten free trials to automatic renewals, when big companies keep charging you, Truebill is your secret weapon to save you money on subscriptions you don't need. Go right now to truebill.com TPS. It could save you thousands a year. Welcome to the Productivity Show, a podcast where we believe that you can get the important things done without having to sacrifice your health, family, and things that matter to you. My name is Tan. I'm the founder and CEO of Asian Efficiency, where we help people become more productive at work and in life. And uh, today I'm joined by my co-host, Brooks Duncan, the CEO of Asian Efficiency. How are you today, Brooks? Uh, I'm doing well. For those who listened to last week's episode, hopefully my voice sounds a little more normal this week than last week, <laughs> uh, but I'm doing great. Awesome. Well, good to see you back in uh, good health. Uh, last week was a bit of a struggle and tug of war, but I'm glad your voice is, is back to normal. Uh, I'm sure people can can hear that as well. Today's episode is going to be a fun one. Uh, this is something we did, I want to say, about a month ago. So we know many of you uh, who like listening to us love to get productivity tips and strategies, but also want to know what's kind of happening in the space. And so one way to kind of stay on top of what's happening in the productivity industry uh, is to listen to this podcast as well, because we want to share some stuff that's been happening and also share some insights of uh, what's going on and also kind of our thoughts of the current events of what's happening around productivity apps, tools, books, and everything else in between. So aside from the industry news, we're also going to be covering three important topics. Uh, the first one is, does it make sense to color code your calendar a week later after everything happened. This is something that one person did and we were questioning if this is actually a good idea or not. So we're gonna be covering that here. Uh, another thing we're gonna be talking about is how capitalism and productivity are hurting young people's well-being. And then the third topic is with more people working from home, do GTD contacts still make sense? So those are things we're gonna be covering. You can find links to everything that we share in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 397. And next week, we're gonna be talking about spring cleaning your schedule and workflows. But as always, we like to kick things off with our top three favorite resources. And uh, Brooks, the floor is yours. All right, so my first resource is uh, a light called the Elgato Key Light Air. Uh, and I have two of them on my desk here, uh, shining on me as we speak. And what these are is they're, they're lights that are really designed for uh, people being on camera, streaming and stuff like that. But the cool thing about them is they're Wi-Fi enabled as well, and they work really well with integrations. So for example, it's made by Elgato, the same company who makes the Stream Deck, which we've talked about on the podcast before. And so to turn on my lights, I just hit a button on my Stream Deck and it sets up my lights exactly how I like them uh, and all that sort of thing. So the Elgato Key Light Air is my first tip. My second is not a resource. Well, I guess it kind of is. It's a tip as well. And this is something that I've done at least five times, and it's worked really well every single time. And that is getting airline support via Twitter. So, you know, sometimes you have some, well, Tan doesn't have this problem because Tan just gets his assistant to do all this stuff. But for the rest of us, uh, when we need to like talk, call the airline, we need to get something sorted. We need to change something. Uh, you know, you call the airline. It can be like a really long wait. The person may or may not be helpful. Uh, a hack that I started doing a couple of years ago, and I just did it a couple of days ago, which is what reminded me of this, is instead of calling in the line, 
just follow the airline on Twitter and send them a direct message. Don't at reply them because they get a million of those. Send them a direct message and make sure they're able to message you back and just be like really succinct, really friendly and just say, hey, uh, I have booking number one, two, three, four, five. Um, I'm having trouble selecting seat 5C. Can you help me out? Uh, And a lot of times they will be able to do it right there. Uh, And it's like I said, I've done this at least five times, maybe even more. Uh, It's really, really successful and pain-free and asynchronous too. So you don't have to sit there on the call. You can send them a DM and then they'll reply back. Really, really helpful tip for me. Uh, number three is a book. Uh, I'm currently go- about maybe halfway through the audiobook. It's called Working by Robert Caro. And if you don't know who Robert Caro is, he's a, a pretty famous reporter, but also biographer. And he's done two of my very favorite biographies ever, The Power Broker, which is about Robert Moses, and Path to Power, which is about Lyndon Johnson. And I don't know why I like these things, because I'm not even American, but uh, he's a really, really good writer. He wrote this book called Working, which is basically about how he works. It's not so much an autobiography. It's more like mm-hmm. him talking about how he does things. And it's just an interesting insight going into the, the depths that people who are really, really into their craft, I always like learning about how people do their craft, applies research, interviewing, going like the extra mile that other people don't to achieve mastery. Uh, and it's a really enjoyable book if you like his book. So it's Working by Robert Caro. And those are my three resources. Awesome. Yeah, we'll have links to everything here in our show notes as well. So don't worry if you miss something. And um, yeah, let's move on to our newsworthy updates here for this episode. So the first industry news that I think a lot of people are going to be enjoying, uh, especially when it comes out later, is so Microsoft is planning to launch a new Outlook version later this year and it's tentatively called One Outlook. So If you're an Outlook user, especially if you're an Outlook user on multiple platforms, you might have noticed that sometimes the features don't align. Like one feature might be available on Windows, but it might not be available on Mac. So Microsoft is now trying to basically consolidate everything where the look and feel is kind of like the web version of Outlook. And all the features are going to be available on all all platforms. So whether it's Windows, Mac, iOS, Android, you don't have to worry about that moving forward, hopefully down the line. Uh, All the features will be available on all different platforms. And the rumored strategy is that also that they want to eventually replace mail and calendar with Outlook as well. But the first step is for them to consolidate the feature sets. So if you ever use Outlook on different platforms, you know it's kind of a pain, right? Because some features might not be available. So hopefully later this year, it's all going to be streamlined. So look out for that feature uh, update later this year. Uh, The second update that's interesting is Todoist, which is a popular Todoist app. Uh, They have a new feature called Command. So it's kind of like having a command center where you can navigate around just using keyboard shortcuts or just using keystrokes. So if you use something like Alfred on the Mac, think of it kind of like that, but within the app itself or for the smaller segment that is listening for those who use something like Superhuman, which is an email app where you basically use only keyboards uh, keystrokes to kind of navigate around. It's kind of like that, but within Todoist. And their goal, or at least their long-term goal, at least with this app feature, is to allow people to use the app without using the mouse whatsoever. And this comes in very handy for people who can't use a mouse, for example, due to a disability. Maybe they broke their mouse or their arm, or they can't see the mouse pointer on the screen, or maybe, you know, they're holding a a coffee or a baby or something like their goal is to make it accessible enough so that you can navigate around your app just using keystrokes. So that's an important update there as well. Again, Todoist launched 
this thing called Command. And then the third newsworthy update is Google releases Chrome OS Flex. So what this does is it allows you to install Chrome OS on Mac and PC hardware. It used to be just limited to whatever hardware Google released, right? So something like a Chromebook, which I think many people are very uh, familiar with. And so with Chrome OS Flex, it's kind of like the cloud's first operating system that's now available to be installed on Mac and PC hardware. So if you have like old computers, you know, that kind of stop working after a while because they, you know, they get slowed down, they don't get the security patches anymore and so on. You can kind of breathe in new life by installing something like Chrome OS. And uh, the good thing is it's free. So you're not just limited to Chromebooks anymore. You can actually install it on your own hardware now moving forward. So three uh, cool updates there. Uh, curious to hear your thoughts on these, Brooks. Yeah, you know what the Outlook thing reminds me of a lot is Evernote. Whereas Evernote's strategy used to be, and they would talk about this like very explicitly, one of the knocks against Evernote, but they, they were like, no, this is the way we choose to do it, is instead of having a consistent interface, they had very different UI, very different features on all of their different platforms. And their reasoning for this was because, hey, we want to take advantage of the different strengths of each platform. Like instead of having what, having it like dumbed down for everything, we want to really play to each platform's strengths and uh, UI. Uh, and I think that worked for a while, but I think there's a lot of value in harmonizing everything. Even though you don't get things quite as, as maybe good on each particular one, like imagine being an IT person I can't even imagine being a corporate IT person and having to support like all these different versions of Outlook that all of their users are using, whether it's on Mac, Windows, uh, their mobile and stuff like that. So I think there's going to be a lot of value in harmonizing it. The one thing I do worry about, though, is that Outlook is going to suffer the same thing that Evernote has, which is when they moved to this more harmonized platform, they lost a lot of power user features. They kind of had to sacrifice power user features for consistency. And now they're kind of like adding a bit back. But I worry like with Outlook, that especially on Windows, there's so many different power user features that a lot of people have been using for you know, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, uh, I worry that that is going to be a, a struggle, but I guess we'll have to see how it all plays out. Uh, the other thing uh, I want to mention is about Chrome OS Flex. Uh, I love this idea. Um, I've received quite a lot of questions about Chromebooks and Chrome OS for a while. I've always wanted to have a Chromebook, but I've never wanted to buy one for this exact reason, which is I don't want to have yet another piece of hardware uh, sitting around uh, taking up space in a drawer or whatever. Uh, so I've always hesitated to buy one, but I do have old laptops that I just haven't got around to getting rid of. Uh, and I'm really excited about this. I actually wanted to install it before recording to play around with it, uh, but I ran out of time. So I'm going to be doing that maybe this weekend. Uh, I think this Chrome OS uh, Flex thing is going to be huge. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, actually, uh, behind this computer that I'm using right now, I have a, a Windows computer that I haven't used in a while. Uh, sometimes I'll use it just to kind of check out some stuff and test stuff, and uh, especially for our courses. Like, sometimes we have to do some Microsoft testing. Uh, so sometimes I'll do that, but uh, I don't really use it that much. And so it'd be fun to kind of maybe have a dual operating system running where I could have Chrome OS on one and, and Windows on the other. So... Uh, it'd be interesting to see. And I like the idea of like a cloud-first operating system. So the benefits of having something in the cloud is that when you have like software updates, it's kind of like almost instant, right? You don't have to wait for a security patch to download first and then, you know, install it. Like it's kind of like there 
on demand already. So I think that's a big benefit, uh, but I'll be curious to see what the speed is like as well, especially on older computers like mine. So yeah, if you have some old hardware laying around like an old Mac or a PC, you're not really using it, this uh, thing could be very helpful and very cost efficient as well. Yeah, we have an internal joke on the team about how old uh, Tan's laptop is and we're all waiting for the day that we're on some sort of screen sharing call and, and his, uh, his computer just dies. So, so maybe he'll be joining us from Chrome OS Flex pretty soon, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, for those who are wondering, I still have my MacBook Pro Retina 2013. Like it was, the, I believe, the first Retina version that they released. And uh, so it's, I wanna say almost nine years old now, uh, almost a decade now. So it's going strong, it's still doing its thing. You know, I just can't really quite do uh, screen sharing and video calling at the same time. It kind of bogs down now, which uh, didn't happen six months ago. But uh, I think once this thing has just hit the ground, I think that's when I'm going to be updating. So hopefully uh, it gives me another six months or so. At least uh, let's hit the 10 year mark if we can. <laughs> All right, let's move over to our industry happening. So we kind of like to kind of navigate the landscape and see what other people are doing when it comes to productivity and tips and strategies and kind of give our take on it. So uh, Brooks, what's the first one that we want to go over? All right. So I thought this was an interesting question. And the question is, does it make sense to color code your calendar? This is something we've talked about a lot, but does it make sense to do it after the fact? So at the end of the week or the end of the month or whatever period you're talking about instead of beforehand. And so I started thinking about this because uh, I came across a Twitter thread by Sahil Bloom, who's a, a VC, he's a VP at a tech investment firm, and he does all these threads on Twitter. Interesting follow. So I followed him for a while. And we've talked about color coding your calendar on the podcast and on uh, the blog for a long time. One of our most popular blog posts actually is about color coding your calendar. And the idea that uh, we've always talked about is using it as a way to time block and segregate the different areas of your life. So maybe you have your your planning, your work, your personal, like maybe give those different colors. So that's really easy to see the difference. So that's the, the way that we've always talked about it. Uh, however, this Twitter thread talked about uh, how Sahil, what he does, and I thought it was really, really interesting. And here's what he does. He goes through the week, you know, he has his calendar, how, you know, he uses his calendar. But at the end of the week, what he does is he goes back and he color codes his calendar. So, and th these aren't like giving it a lot of thought. This is just like your gut instinct, which is usually the correct one. So basically he looks back at his calendar for the week and anything where he felt that he was in flow, he colors it green. Anything that he felt he was productive, like he did, you know, productive stuff, he colored it orange. Anything that's kind of like neutral, yellow, and anything that was unproductive, whatever that means to him, you know, your, your gut instinct, he made it red. And so then what he does is he asks himself, after he's gone and color-coded this, he looks back at his calendar and he asks himself, okay, what are the flow state activities? So those green things that I had, you know, what have I been doing that I need to prioritize in the future? The second thing is, what are those time-wasting activities, uh, so the red ones that I can delete, and maybe like the, the orange and the yellow, what are things there that I could delegate or maybe upgrade and make more, more productive? How could I turn some of that orange time into more green time? And so the ultimate goal, of course, is to have the most 
hours in green, uh, maybe some hours in orange. You know, you're never going to be in flow state all the time. Uh, you delegate those yellows and then you get rid of the red. So the, the perfect week is a zero red week. Probably not going to happen, but that's the goal. And so I really thought this was a real, I haven't tried this myself, but I really thought this is a really interesting idea is to use color coding and have a more systematic review so you can really see how you optimize your calendar every single week. What do you think of this, Tan? Does it, do you think it makes sense to color code your calendar after the week happens? Yeah, when I saw this, I thought it was a very interesting approach. I think if you do this for a few weeks, you probably get a lot of interesting insights from this. And over time, I think you can probably get rid of it as well where you don't need it. So uh, as someone who's been, you know, doing a weekly review every single week for almost like, I don't know, 15 years now, like almost, um, this almost to me comes natural and this is part of the self-awareness. But also part of my weekly review is, I ask myself questions such as, you know, what are some things that I can uh, get rid of on my calendar to free up more time? Like, what are some things that did uh, feel like I was very productive that I can replicate for this upcoming week? Like, I have those kinds of questions in a checklist. And so when I review my week, I kind of have a sense of, okay, this was good, this was not good. Like, I don't have to necessarily color code it. It kind of happens as I'm just reviewing stuff. So in a way, this... This approach of Sahil is, I think, a little bit more tactical, and especially if you're someone who likes to be more visual with his stuff. Like, I think this is a great approach to say, hey, maybe do it for like a month or so, because then just like time tracking, you don't want to do it forever. But if you do it for a month, it gives you a lot of interesting insights. Same thing with this. I would say if you want to really get a grip on what your week looks like and where you can spend more time on. Color coding, it wouldn't hurt. I think it would make things very easy for you to kind of highlight it. Yeah, and like uh, like you said earlier, we uh, will have a link to that Twitter thread uh, in the show notes, theproductivityshow.com forward slash 397 if you want to check it out. Uh, but I think I might actually try this because you did a presentation uh, and we'll include a link to that as well in the show notes. You did a presentation where you talk about, and uh, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> you talk about how like a lot of the, a lot of the challenges that we have isn't so much time management. Like everybody thinks time management is the problem, uh, but really it's more self-management that is the the bigger problem. And I think this is, like you said, a really good uh, tactical way to get a handle on that is like know how you're spending your time without the kind of like the pain in the butt aspect of time tracking and not against time tracking, but it can uh, have a lot of overhead. Whereas I think this is like an 80, 20 way to do time tracking and be like, okay, this is how I big picture, how I spent my time. What are those like big rocks I can knock off? So, uh, yeah, I like the idea a lot. Yeah. You bring up a good point. This is like a more effective way of time tracking because with time tracking, the big hurdle is like starting the timer, right? Writing down what you're doing, and then as soon as you stop, you stop it. And then you kind of write down, you know, oh, was this good? Was this great? Or was this bad? Whereas if you do it afterwards, it's much easier to kind of get a gauge of what it was like. However, in order to make that work, though, you have to do it every single week. Otherwise, if you're two weeks in, you probably don't remember what happened two weeks ago during this time slot. So the key, though, is to do it you know, consistently every single week. And I think that way you kind of have the 80-20 because ultimately you're just looking for 
what are some of my productive hours? And if you want to take it even a step further, I would say if you use something like the Rise Science app, which kind of helps you predict your circadian rhythm. So for those who don't know, everyone has a circadian rhythm. It's like our internal clock. And we go through very predictable patterns throughout the day when we're most alert and when we have a, a lull. So typically everyone kind of knows about the quote unquote afternoon lull. And it's, it's a real thing according to certain patterns of our circadian rhythm. Like not everyone has a lull in the afternoon. Like I happen to have one, but some others, like if you tend to wake up a little bit later, you might have a lull later in the day, like in the early evenings or something like that. Right. So there's a very predictable pattern. So if you can actually match your pattern of like when you're most alert versus when you're most unproductive or you feel like that lull that is very predictable if you can match those two where you have productive things happening during the times when you're most focused that takes it even a step further and i'm you know a little bit ahead of myself here but uh <laughs> that's something for those who are a little bit more advanced want to look into look into your circadian rhythm tracking it you'll be surprised what you can uh, pull off all right so let's move over to the second topic here for today uh Brooks, uh, are we talking about capitalism? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are definitely going in a different direction than a normal episode. We're going to tackle a, like a really easy, uh, small topic. Uh, and the second topic we want to talk about is uh, are capitalism and productivity specifically uh, causing well-being problems for Gen Z? And so, again, this, uh, this is the second of these episodes where I'm going to talk about a TikTok video. I can't, I'm going to get a rep as like the TikTok guy, and I don't even really use TikTok. But we came across this uh, Business Insider article, which we will, again, link to in the show notes, uh, where it talks about this TikTok video that went viral, millions of views. And basically, the idea is that the creator of the video said that, like, like many young adults, I used to want an enjoyable and meaningful life. That is until I discovered capitalism. That must have been a bit of a shock. Uh, now I live in a society where my productivity matters more than my well-being. And so I'm just depressed and anxious all the time. I'm smiling, but I'm deeply wounded. I work three jobs and I still feel like I'm not doing enough. Uh, and I thought that this was an interesting, uh, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this, Tan. I thought this was really, really interesting because this isn't the first time I've come across something like this. And we were actually, uh, just before recording uh, earlier this morning, Tan and I were talking about how there seems to be this trend of not anti-productivity, but realizing that the way people used to think about productivity, which is just like getting more done, always, 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 uh, is maybe not all it's cracked up to be. And uh, I, I'm seeing this with my kids. You know, I have teenage kids. Uh, one of them is going to be graduating from high school next year. And it's just so interesting, the differences, because I'm uh, on the older, older side of things, let's just say. And my generation, uh, when we were coming out of school, like it was just a given, right? You're going to probably come out of school. You're probably going to go to university or college. You are probably going to start at the bottom. You're going to work your way up in some corporation or whatever uh, and do your time. And then someday you'll retire and blah, blah, blah. And the the concept of having to like suffer a little bit <laughs> for uh, for productivity and for your future is just like nobody even really questioned or very few people questioned. It. It's just the way it was. And like the thought of well-being uh, kind of like never really entered our mind. But I think it's very different now. And I'm curious, Tan, what you think of this 
trend like almost anti-productivity or like questioning productivity maybe is a different way to put it uh what do, what do you think of that so i came across this article because someone on slack as part of our uh, productivity academy we have a private slack where people can kind of hang out we have all our members there and uh one of the members posted this article and uh, this person re- uh, said how he or she uh related to this article very much and i want to keep this person anonymous because you know it's it's a member and i don't have their consent to necessarily share this so i wanted to keep it private but i thought it was very interesting because when i think about the landscape we are in now uh, especially with all the stuff of like hustling and grinding and like you got to do more you got to do you know you got to sacrifice right i think what people are starting to notice and something you and i have talked about before too is there's this movement slowly realizing that this is not the the life that we want to live, right? And it's one of the reasons I always talk about like happy people are productive people. And that's a transformation that I've kind of made over the last few years as well. And if you look at the early days of Asian efficiency, it was actually a very similar mindset. It was very much about like, how do we do more in less time? How do we, you know, get all this stuff done, right? And nowadays, if you look at the, the slogans of, of the stuff that we put out there, uh, even from this podcast, you we open up the show by saying we want to help people get the important things done in the time they have without having to sacrifice the health, family, and things that matter to them, right? So it's not necessarily about doing more, but it's really about doing the right things in the in the time available that you have, right? And sure, there's some things we can do to maximize our time and, and so on, uh, but it's not necessarily about doing, 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 doing all the time where, you, where it starts to hurt your health, you know, your sleep. And on this presentation that I've done before too, like I show how when I was working and, and overwhelmed and stressed out, like I literally gained weight, like 30 pounds in like in, in the span of like two months or something uh, because it was so stressful. And I think a lot of people are seeing that now too, combined with, you know, when you work from home and stuff, like I can't tell from the video of this person was working from home, but there's a lot more anxiety from there from that situation as well, because a lot of people are not used to that situation, right? So now you're isolated from people as well. Uh, and that makes it even tougher for a lot of people. And so, uh, I think a lot of people are kind of awakening or, or, you know, starting to realize to say, Hey, it's not about working more necessarily. Um, and also if my company doesn't care about my well being, like, why would I want to work more? Like this is, this is, this is crazy. Yeah, I mean, I've been laid off from jobs uh, multiple times, so uh, I am very familiar with the concept of, you know, uh, when a company is uh, is done with you, they're not gonna uh, they're not gonna necessarily uh, show you a lot of love. So, which is not to say you shouldn't show your employer love uh, or uh, dedicate, because I am somebody who thinks that you should do that. But you need to understand that. At the end of the day, the the person who cares most about your well being should be and is you, uh, and that's just that's just the way it is. So uh, this is a, yeah, this is a really interesting trend that we're kind of watching. And it's funny you mentioned the podcast and how it's changed because I, I think literally like the podcast intro <laughs> way back in the early episodes, I'd have to go back to to listen. But the way I remember it is uh, uh, we used to say like literally do more <laughs> like that was the that was the the goal of the podcast but uh i think we've really seen this trend shift uh and i think it's it's just going to keep shifting here's a stat 40 percent of people recently said they are overwhelmed by the number of subscriptions they pay for the other 60 percent probably forgot they subscribed in the first place 
If you're not sure how to take control of your subscriptions, you need Truebill. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or even forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Companies intentionally make subscriptions hard to cancel, but that's okay. Truebill makes it super simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is right there to help you when you need them. They'll do the work to cancel your unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped them save over $100 million. An example is Matthew B who says, in a matter of seconds, I saved $660 for the year on my DirecTV bill, saved $120 for the year on my Sirius XM bill, and saved $840 a year on car insurance. The website and app makes it easy to connect your bank or credit card, and then you can go ahead and start saving pretty much right away. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at truebill.com TPS. Go right now, truebill.com TPS. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com TPS. Yeah, no, the podcast literally said that too. It's like, do more. <laughs> like when I look back at it now, I go, no, no, it's not about doing more. Um, and so even if you look at an old Twitter account that we have, uh, I think it's like the productivity show, which we don't really use, but even the banner says do more. I just recently came across it and I realized like, yeah, we've, we've evolved over the years as well. And so for those who are listening, if you're in this situation where you feel like, you know, whatever you do is never good enough, um, the best tip I can offer you is to say, hey, before you start your day, ask yourself, like, what's one thing that I can do that would make this a productive day? Or how do I define what a productive day looks like for me? Because if we don't know what that looks like and we're always moving the goalposts, then you can keep going and going and going, but you never feel satisfied and, and gratified by what, what you've accomplished. And so if you say to yourself before you start working, hey, today I'm gonna write chapter one, I'm gonna submit my taxes, and after that I'm done, like that would be considered a good day. And once you hit it, like you feel really good about yourself and you can move on. Like, sure, there might be other stuff you have to do, but at least you know you had a productive day. So that's the best thing that I can offer to everyone uh, that's listening that feels like they're in that situation. Yeah, in the live stream chat, uh, Kimberly, uh, who's one of our members says, uh, for me, it's all about being productive so I can work fewer hours. And yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's exactly what you said, Tam. Like, what is your goal? What are you trying to do? And then you can use productivity to get there. Uh, so I love that, Kimberly. Awesome, Kimberly. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Let's move over uh, to the last topic here, and that is topic number three. So I brought this up because I was recently browsing a forum from uh, Getting Things Done, the GTD method that I'm sure many people are aware of, and they have a public forum. And one person who recently transitioned working from home full-time for his company, he asked this question about context. So for those who don't know what context are in the GTD method, typically when you have a task, they also encourage you to assign a context with it as well to say, hey, you know, if you've ever read the book, it will say, oh, is this going to be done on my computer? Is this going to be done at the office? Is this going to be done at home? So you can assign those things to your task and then know like, okay, if I'm at home, let me pull up all my tasks that are assigned home as my context. Or if I'm at the office, let me pull up all the tasks that I can only do at the office. However, this person has been working from home. So my question that I want to impose here is, and this is the person who asked this as well, is with more people working from home, do GTD contexts 
still makes sense today. Uh, because this person, what he was doing was, okay, he's working from home full time now. And he kind of like updated his GTD workflow to have contacts called like on computer, right? And that seems to be, you know, making sense, right? Because you're working from home, you're probably on your computer, but then he would expand it and say, okay, on computer dash two minutes. So we had all these tasks that he could do on his computer in two minutes or less, which is the two minute rule that many people know of. Uh, then he expanded it and said, okay, I'm going to be quote unquote on computer dash five minutes. And then it turned into on computer dash 30 minutes and so on. And then over time he has this list of contacts and it's all on computer, <laughs> but just differentiated by how long a task might take. And so I guess, uh, just to kick it off here, Brooks, uh, what's your take on uh, contacts nowadays, especially when people are working from home? Yeah, I, I find contacts less and less useful. I still use a few of them, but it's more action-based. Like for me, a contact might be phone if I need to phone somebody or email if I need to email somebody or that sort of thing. But I can't honestly say that I even use those really. Uh, I do it just out of habit, but uh, I it's not like I'm doing it like the canonical idea for contacts that David Allen originally described where you look at all the things that have the context of phones. So you can sit there and batch and make your phone calls or whatever. I don't even really use it for that. So I think contacts really are less and less useful that they used to be. Uh, I know some people do things like use them for priorities or use them for energy levels, like maybe a low energy and a high energy context uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, and if that works for you, great. But I think I would say that if you are finding yourself having to think up ways to use contexts just for the sake of coming up with clever contexts, that's probably a sign that they're not as useful for you as, as you think they will be. So yeah, I would say if you're at home all the time, there's really like less and less reason to use contexts. Uh, but if you are listening to this and you are a big GTD person and a big context person, uh, I would really love to hear some ways that you're using them. I remember when OmniFocus version three came out, uh, this is probably like two, three years ago, right? They got rid of context and mm. it was kind of like an optional thing in a way. And I've realized from using OmniFocus for, you know, I don't know, almost a decade now or something that over the last few years, I kind of stopped using it too, because one is yes, I've been working from home for over a decade now and I did find it helpful in the beginning, especially as someone who uh, loves the GTD method and used OmniFocus extensively and even created a course about it, uh, I've tried all sorts of different things, like you mentioned, like priority levels, energy levels, time duration, like this uh, person posted on the forum. And um, what I find most helpful is there's a few contexts that we'll still use, but it's all related to people. So I might have a people context where, for example, I might have stuff assigned to you, Brooks, that I need to follow up on. Right. And we be like, okay, this is really helpful because now I don't have to create a list that is called Brooks or whatever. Uh, I can have a context that is assigned Brooks. And so anytime I'm talking to you, I can be like, okay, let me pull up all the things that are related to Brooks and using a context uh, with that. So I, this is where I find that's still helpful, but with places and so on, I kind of realized like, yes, that was nice in the beginning, but nowadays, uh, especially in the last few years, when most of us haven't traveled as much, there's less value in that. And so oftentimes now, if you do a good job of keyword filtering, which you can do now with a lot of the views, 
you can find stuff just using that as well. So I find contacts less valuable today and then I really don't use them as much except when it comes to people side of things. The other downside that I want to mention, which this person brought up is like, if you start estimating with minutes in terms of like how long something takes, the problem with that also, uh, and this is a big part of agile principles as well is as something becomes more complex, it's much harder to estimate how long something takes. So in my experience, if something takes more than 60 minutes, it's very difficult for you as a person to estimate how long it actually is going to take. Like a 60 minute task can kind of be estimated, especially if it's a routine thing you have done before. But if it's a brand new thing and you might estimate it at 60 minutes, oftentimes you'll find that you're pretty off. And so it's kind of like a losing battle to start estimating based on minutes. So it's something I don't really recommend people do. Like two minutes, that's fine. That's a, it's a great thing to do, especially with the two minute rule. But beyond that, I don't see a lot of value in that. Yeah, I think the key, and I think you kind of highlighted it there, is if you're going to use context or tags, as OmniFocus recalls them uh, now, uh, make it so that they're actually doing something for you. So a good example is what you just said, the people one. That's a great example. Giacomo in the chat mentioned that as well. Um, the two minutes, like if you if you follow like the two minute rule, put it, well, actually, technically, if you're doing two minutes, you shouldn't even be creating a task. You should just do it. Uh, but maybe a similar example would be if you're somebody who does like the 12 week year and you want to collect tasks to do, say, in a buffer block or something like that, then maybe you would have a buffer context or something like that so that you can easily see this, the things to do in a buffer block. Like whatever it is, uh, have that as a system that you're actually going to use. If you find yourself giving tags or context or whatever, but not actually doing anything with them, that's probably a, a waste of time and you might want to simplify your system. All right, we're coming to the end of the episode here today. So hope you uh, enjoyed it. Uh, we definitely like this new format. I don't know about you, Brooks, but I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, we were talking about beforehand. The one thing we like about it is we literally have no idea what the other person's going to say. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, it's always, uh, always a good time. But as always, we like to end things with an action item. So my recommendation for you is before you start the next working day, ask yourself, what makes for a productive day? So before you start working, before you start hitting your to-do list, ask yourself, what makes for a productive day today? And if you know how to answer that question, I think you're way ahead uh, and you're probably gonna avoid burnout and feeling like you're never good enough. So I want you to feel achieved at the end of the day. And the way to do that is by simply asking yourself before you start working, what makes for a productive day? Uh, next week, we're gonna be talking about spring cleaning your schedule and workflow. So as spring is coming back around, uh, we're excited to kind of like re-jumpstart things as we do things here at AE. So be sure to check back next week. And uh, everything that we talked about today can be found in the show notes. You can go to theproductivityshow.com slash 397. If you made it this far, you enjoyed it, let us know. Uh, definitely leave a review on iTunes and Spotify as well. We would love that and very much appreciate it. And uh, thanks again, and we'll see you next Productive Monday.